Hi, welcome to the Miles from Home podcast. I'm your host, David Miles. Holy smokes, do I ever have a conversation for you today. Steve Poltz, he's a wild man. He's a wild man. If you've ever seen him live, you know what I'm talking about. He's got so much energy on stage. He's hilarious. He's written massive, massive songs. He wrote with Jewel, You Were Meant For Me. You know that song, Jewel, massive super smash. And then he's got, you know, that was that was years ago. But before that and after that, he's been hitting the road hard, putting on unique shows all over the world. And I say unique as in you've never seen a show like his, and every single show he does is different. It's comedy, it's improv, it's touching, it's 10-minute songs, it's wild, and he does it all over the world, small communities, big cities, and it's crazy. He's from San Diego for years. That's where he built his career. Now he lives in Nashville, and you can see he can come up here to the Maritimes. I'm coming to you from Fredericton, New Brunswick, all over. He's playing all over rural Maritimes and filling these spots now because people know the kind of show he delivers. So it was a real pleasure to have Steve Poltz in the studio. He was here with me. First time we haven't done this over Zoom. We did this in person because he was ripping through Fredericton for a show. And he came by here first. I, I It was really fun. I think you're going to enjoy it. I had no idea where it was going to go. He's an unpredictable dude. There's, there's a, a little bit of bad language in there too. Just a little warning. So just be ready for that. But we got on. We got on to it. And then he turned the mic on me. I mean, I didn't know that was coming, but you got to roll with it, right? You got to just roll with it. And I enjoyed this conversation. I knew it was going to be unpredictable, but we got into all sorts of stuff. So I'm excited to share it with you. Remember, check out all the other episodes of Miles from Home. Recently had Tara Lightfoot on here and Shad and Joel Plaskett. It's been really fun. It's just getting more fun by the day. I'm on Instagram at David Miles, on Twitter at Miles David. So let's stay in touch. In the meantime, sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with the one and only Steve Poltz. always had this energy i have and i'm just excited that i made the team honestly for as weird as that might sound what i mean is i didn't make the basketball team when i was a kid in ninth grade and then i when i didn't make the team i cried and it really hurt and i was like lit i was small and you know kind of like asthmatic and i stuttered and so I was a real late bloomer. So the wrestling coach had me become a wrestler because I didn't make the basketball team. And I just wanted somebody to want me. And then when I wanted to become a musician, I remember I had an aunt who lived in Windsor, Ontario. And she was like, you can't just live at the beach and play guitar. And that was all I needed to hear. Like, don't ever tell me I can't do something. And then the fact that Oh, because I'm, then you were like, no, I'm going to live at the beach and play guitar. Exactly. <laughs> oh, wow. I thought you were going to say, like, it got you up and out there. No, no. You were like, let's hit the beach. Let's play guitar. Yeah. Once she told me that, I said, she said, because she asked me, what are you going to do now that you're getting out of high school? I said, I want to go live at the beach and I want to play guitar. And she just crushed my dream, like, in the worst way. 
And it made me so angry, but I just bottled it. And I remember thinking, I'm going to show her. It was the best thing she could have said to me. Yeah. Because I just said, I'll figure out a way to do it. I can do anything. And then the fact that I'm able to do this gives me energy. So I'm the least jaded musician. I'm still excited. Like, I was excited last night. I played Miramichi, New Brunswick. I played at whatever this is called, New Maritime Brewery. They don't even do shows there. They just started. They don't even have a good PA. This guy brought in two monitor wedges and just set it up, and they kind of made a makeshift stage. It was very kind of punk rock in a weird way. And I just thought, well, these people are going to get a show. And it's just I'm curious about stuff. And the gigs have always gotten better, and then every once in a while you do one like last night where it's this slapdash PA, and you've done them. You know what I'm talking about. One guy goes, you could sing through this amp. Like right. an amp, you've seen that before, and you're like, no, I'd rather just go unplugged. But, and then I get these great shows, and I play them, and I'm still excited because I'm still riffing and working on stuff. So for me, the reason I get so excited is because i never written a set list in my life. I wouldn't even know how to. I mean, not that I wouldn't know how to. If you hold a gun to my head, I'm sure I could do it. I just, either I'm too lazy to do it, or I don't want to do it. Do you feel like it would just be too boring? Like it would just take away the mystery and the mystery is what you're interested in. I'm interested in hitting new highs each night and right. stumbling onto magic. And a, and I'm addicted to the magic and the adrenaline rush. But the of, interesting thing is that most people aren't willing to put themselves in a position that where there's that much risk, right? Like you you would you would kind of like control your risk by by doing a set list. By having yeah. the same production every night, by not going into situations where there are unknowns, but you you seem to be pretty like you're okay with risk because it generally means more potential for magic. Yeah, I'm pretty fearless, <laughs> right? Okay, and I wasn't always that way. I wondered it, that. You know, the whole ten thousand hour real thing. That whole thing is really true. The ten thousand hour thing. I think it is. I think you can be born with a bit of the tenacity and and the fear factor and all that. I was always pretty fearless, but you get scared when you first start playing gigs. And I remember I used to play. I remember one time I opened for Lucinda Williams at Slim's in San Francisco and she had just come out with car wheels on a gravel road and I had left my band, The Rugburns, and I was signed to Mercury Universal, had a huge record deal. And I opened for at Slim's and I just was horrible. I couldn't, my hands were shaking. And all I was thinking, I had that voice in my head, these people love Lucinda Williams and they hate you and you're an imposter and you're horrible and those, everybody in the front row hates you so bad and right. I had to learn to block that voice out. I don't have it anymore, it, but it's taken seriously. So what year was that? That was like- 98. And you were how old? 38. Okay, so you'd been doing it. Rugburns were a band through your 20s. Yeah, and we had a swagger. Okay. You know what I mean? And so I left that band and then I was alone playing. Well, this is what I was going to say too, right? Is that you get that like a band provides you with some comfort. On, you're with your buds. Mm-hmm. All else fails, you're with your buds. But you know, you go from a band situation to solo, all of a sudden you're holding that danger right in the palm of your hand. Like that voice can be so much closer, as you said. And when you're in a band, if the band is not hired hands, that so like anybody listening out there, uh, you could be a solo artist and hire a band, but basically these are hired hands that are working for you. So you're almost, there's always a bit of a hierarchy where you're the guy that hired them 
and then you can get rid of them at the end of the tour. Not get rid of them, but you know, you're done with them and you could always hire somebody else and that's just the way it is. But when you're in a band, you're a gang. You're a gang of brothers and sisters, depending on what your band makeup is. You know, for us it was a gang of brothers and we were very much had a swagger and we we would go into a town and really feel like on any given night, we were the greatest band in the world. Like we believed it, which was really cool. You know, I, I'm so glad I got to go through that because I seriously believe on certain nights, I would have hated to be the band that followed us. It was right. just like a show. Right. And man, we were we were into it. And then on, you know, there were nights where it was horrible too. But it was all out, full out. Assault. Assault. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I would get mad. Based if in they California. Were... Basically, were you in San Diego on these? San DJs? Diego. Okay, yeah. Amazing. I mean, playing Los Angeles, San yeah, Diego, yeah. San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, all, all up the coast, and then going out to Arizona. I always thought. Was it a party? Circles. Were you guys all partying? All partying. Okay. I remember at one point I looked at our bass player, and I said, and I remember we'd eaten some mushrooms that night, and I said, "Do you realize?" I was looking at a calendar because we didn't have phones and stuff. You know, we had a paper calendar and I was looking at all the dates scribbled on and directions to clubs. Used to call the club and get directions. We had a beeper at the time. And I remember saying to our bass player, I looked at the last 83 days, I think I said, I've been drunk for 83 nights. Every night we've been drunk. And we were laughing so hard because the shrooms had kicked in. And we sat in the van. We would watch the sun come up and it was this energy and then we came up with this brilliant idea of let's not ever get a hotel room. See how long we can go not getting a hotel room and how much more money we'll make. Like all the things you go through, it was so fun. Like picking out the shirts that we were going to get printed. Okay, we like Rolling Rock beer. We like the logo. Let's make it say Rugburns Rock. I would come yeah. up with this idea. We get the Rugburns Rock t-shirts. And then I go, you guys, you want to see if we can just ask people from the stage over the mic? We'll stay at anyone's house. And they were like, yeah. And I was doing the math. I said, because we went from getting two rooms a night because we had a road guy to then one room a night. We go, if we get one room a night, we'll make this much more money. We brought sleeping bags and you know, you're young. And then to telling people, and we got on a streak where it went like, 60 days without getting a hotel and then we divvy up the money we called it the slush fund it was like we were um bonnie and clyde or it something it was working though you were making the dough making the <laughs> dough and going crazy and going crazy. recklessly going crazy everything was free right. yeah going crazy right. going nuts and it was the 80s. It was a different time. That's what we say about everything. Yeah, 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 yeah that's right. I always say it's that. Because you were 20. It was yeah. a different, or 20, 30 years old. It was a different time. Oh, yeah. I say this with my wife all the time, Sharon. I always go, <laughs> this is our thing. Whenever something doesn't seem like it plays well today, like it sounds whatever, right. yeah, too yeah. risque, you know, how everything's changed. When we hear it, if we hear somebody say it and other people are shocked, because we hang out with a lot of really hip millennials in Nashville where we live and we live in a really hipster East Nashville neighborhood and so I'm hanging with some of these kids that are like you know whatever Madison Cunningham or Anthony DeCosta or Molly Tuttle or Billy Strings and certain people like that are in that group that I'm hanging out with they'll say can you believe so-and-so did this like slept with somebody are they I can't believe what they did and I always look at Sharon and we just laugh and we're like, it was the 80s. It yeah, was a different right. time where you hear about some sort of aberrant behavior that is not in place today. 
So our excuse for everything now, even if it's some poor behavior from the 40s, we always go, it was the 80s. Yeah, right. It was a different time. It's so our excuse. It, that, sums up your, that sums up those years, though, for you. For those touring years were just yeah. wild. But we had fun. Like, we were writing songs, and we were like, every night we would... You know what I liked about being in a band is we would stop at, like, I don't know, some farm store or country western store and go, what are we going to be tonight? Let's all get right. overalls. Okay, tonight let's be Mormon missionaries. And we'd be at Walmart. we get these crappy white shirts with black ties and pants. So it was always... So it was fear. There was obviously fearlessness in that band. It was all fearlessness. Yes, but when I went solo then, then that's it... when I got scared. So what, what prompted the solo? What, what prompted the end of that kind of era? It was really, boy, I, st I had this song called Dick's Automotive. It was a Rugburn song, and it was like this nine-minute song that would sometimes be 20 minutes. And it was this rambling story where the audience would be chanting, Mommy Deer Dead, Baby Deer Alive, Dick's Automotive. And it's crazy rock and roll song. Two chords, the whole song, E and A. And I would just have all these drunk people. We, we had this college crowd, and they'd be going, Dick's Automotive. And at the time, I had written this song called I Love Everything About You. It was really sweet. It was It's on the Notting Hill soundtrack. Right. And I really liked the song, but it, it had nothing to do with the rug burns. And I go, but I believed in doing whatever I wrote. So we would go from, I would want to play I Love Everything About You. It was really sweet. And people would just be like talking through it. And I remember thinking, I want to do this other thing. And then one of the guys quit in the band. So we replaced him and then another guy quit. So we went down to being a trio. And then um, I got offered a record deal and I was just like, I'm done doing this. I want right. to do this other thing. So I went solo. Crazy. Which and had room to do... But I lost a lot of my fan base. I I didn't, knowing what I know now, the advice I give people is different than what I would have given them then because I've learned the hard way. And that is, I like I just have, here's an example. I have friends that have had bands and then they'll go, I'm doing this other project now. I'm going to call myself Adam Orr. I have a friend who did this, who I love, but I'm like, what are you going to be? Are you going to be Chris Hoffie? Are you going to be Adam Orr? Because I love him. And these guys would always change their name. Now we're the Truckee Brothers. And I, we were getting these discussions. I go, dude, do you know all you have is your name is your brand that people know? Like if you keep doing different things, you think you're being cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like if you're Dave Matthews but and you want to start a side you're project. Yeah, 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 you got a lot. If you're Dave Matthews or somebody or Ben Harper, you have another way of getting the word out easier. I'm not saying you shouldn't do what your heart wants to do. I'm just saying what I learned was I thought when I left the Rugburns. They would all come to you. They would all follow you there. But what right. I learned was there was a huge rate of attrition and I lost like 70% of my audience. And those that did come that were Rugburns fans were going, this sucks. This is too mellow. Right. And I was like, you know, and that hurt. Yeah, like yeah. I'd hear people actually saying, 
Um, you know, and like, then you're like, but I still can play Dick's Automotive. Yeah, yeah. It's still here. And then I would try to pander to the audience <laughs> yeah, and right. do it. The funny thing is, now I'd have no problem doing Dick's Automotive solo because so much time has passed. I'm comfortable with all that material. Right. But for a while, I would just be pandering to go, okay, is that what you want to hear? Yeah, right. How can I make you happy? So you hadn't quite figured out the solo. Now, had the Jewel thing already happened? Is this all around the same time? Yes, the Jewel thing had happened. And so you were right. The Notting Hill record label was yeah. after, and you wrote that song with Jewel. That's right. You were meant for me. I wrote with Jewel, but the Notting Hill one was different. You were meant for me. I wrote with Jewel, but um, the Notting Hill one I wrote on my own. But that's and, all around the same period of time. Yeah, and I, I got a song in Jack Frost, the Michael Keaton movie that plays every Christmas. Thank you very much because you get oh, a wow. BMI royalty wow, check. Really? That's really cool. And so it was a crazy time from a songwriting perspective. You were a hot commodity. I was listening this morning to the Brett Easton Ellis podcast of Witches Behind a Paywall. So you have to be a Patreon s subscriber. It's like whatever, two bucks or something. He That's the way Brett Easton Ellis does this. And for those of you listening out there, he's the guy that wrote American Psycho and Less Than Zero. Uh, he's an American author. Really, a really interesting guy. He's gay and he's he was like years ago out and proud about uh, being gay and it's not what the whole podcast is based on but he's got a really interesting take on things and so I was listening to it because a friend of mine was his guest and I had lost track of where was Brett Easton Ellis and I loved American Psycho I love it what that scene where they talk about hip to be square and it's so I was listening to the podcast because my friend Sam Outlaw was on it. And Sam Outlaw is this uh, songwriter from Southern California, but now lives in Nashville. And he recently put out an album that's really 80s sounding. Prior to that, he had put out stuff that was very country sounding, thus the name Sam Outlaw. And it was like kind of a little smart assy. But he just came out with this flat out 80s record, as did John Mayer. Yeah, and yeah. so um, he was being interviewed by Brett Easton Ellis and he was talking about all that kind of stuff and they called it like the I can't remember the word they used but for the old guard days of when you would get royalties and how much has changed they they have a word they're using and it will come to me during this but it is like the royalty days or something oh like they were just big days in general in terms of yeah money. and I got in at the yeah, end of, of those days the old yeah. guard I got in at the end of that and I got to see what that was like I got to see what it was like to be with Jewel playing Red Rocks and playing the Gorge and playing oh because you were in the band as I well, was in her right? band yeah, and right. opening and we were on a private jet sometimes we yeah, had right. buses I got to do the whole thing she had security because what she was a so trip huge. man especially to be on just on the periphery of it or you're not the center of attention, but you're on the periphery, so you're experiencing all this attention by way. Yes. And it's, you know what I learned? I learned I never want to be that big. I bet. I bet. Because, man. I mean, God bless her. She's great, and she's still a great friend of mine. But man, what she went through, she literally had full-time security at one point. She was on the cover of Time magazine. She was on the cover of Rolling Stone. It was during Lilith Fair. She was huge. And she had crazy stalkers that would show yeah. up. We played oh, Woodstock 99. Man. I'm in that uh, Woodstock 99 documentary that came out on HBO for just a hot minute because we're on stage together. And um, I mean, there was just, I got to do that and I'm forever grateful. I went from the rug burns, got to be a part of her band and I had a real major record label deal, got written up in Rolling Stone and did all that. But you know what? It wasn't as fun as I'm having now. Yeah, right. 
I mean, this is what I love about your perspective, right? You've been through, you've done the journey. Totally. As you said, you're like, just happy to be rocking it, right? You're rocking yeah. it. Like this is now, how many decades have you been playing music professionally? I've been playing since the 80s. Yes. Yeah, so since the early, to... since 82 when we started the Rugburns. So. almost 40 years. Yeah. And I haven't had a real job since 88. I quit to go play on the streets of Europe in 88. I left the Rugburns for a little bit and went and played on the streets because I just wanted to see what that was like. I had a job and then I traveled all around and made passing change. And that was when it really hit me. I, I will always be taken care of. I have, I personally have whatever it is. There's a thing, there's an it thing. I have a little bit of the it thing. And what the it thing is, is I truly believe you could drop me off in any country, anywhere. As long as I have my guitar, I'll get a free meal. Yeah, right. It's not you'll, huge. You'll, no, but you'll stay alive. You'll be able to, this is what you do. Yeah, I'm not made, I really don't believe I was made for huge, like my fr friend, do you know Jason Mraz? Like yeah, how yeah. big he is. Yeah. So he's a friend of mine from San Diego. He and Jewel were meant to be huge. Like you watched them and they had things, I just dropped the toothpick, oh, I'll get it later. Okay. They had things that were like, they have that thing, like you hear them and it's like meant for arenas. I don't have that. Like, I'm going to do like a but weird song. But did you think that you had something. to like free yourself of some of those expectations? This is what I've been trying to figure out now, like second decade of my career is like, sometimes I think when we start, we all kind of have one idea of what a career looks like. Yes. Right? It's got to look like this. Then you do these kind of gigs and you get this kind of record deal. If you can, you know, if you're lucky and then boom, boom, boom. But then as you go a little further, sometimes it's through not getting those things. Often it is, but the path kind of starts to reveal itself and you start to realize that actually, no, no, that, that's not working out necessarily because it's not actually what I would enjoy or be very good at doing. You know, it's really interesting to see now four decades into it, you're in your zone. Every show is a winner. You know what I mean? Like, you yeah. know, you know what you're doing. You, you can go high risk. You can drop the set list. You're not afraid. There's no fear left. Don't you think that that's kind of a manifestation of the fact that you're doing now exactly what you're supposed to be doing? Whereas kind of before, maybe it was like, you had to pursue these other things. Go, ah, you know what? Yeah. You know, you know, you saw all these things. I think I have a great career. When Jason Mraz started getting big after Jewel, like when Jewel got big, I was like, I'm going to get big too. I'm on a yeah. major label deal. And my feelings were kind of hurt when I got dropped by the label because I thought maybe I don't have it. Yeah, right. You know, you go through times of self-doubt. And then when Jason broke big, I was like, what does he have that I don't have? You know, it kind of hurt my feelings. You you compare yourself to others. And then along the way, it was like a funny thing happened on the way to the zoo. I was just like, oh, wait, I'm just me. And does quantity make better quality? Am I true to myself? And when I learned to listen to my own heart and play what I was doing... I knew I'd always have a career and I'd always be fed. I'd never have to worry about money because I would be taken care of because I was doing what was yeah. honest to me. And it's probably, I still believe I'm swinging for the fences. Like I got a new record coming out. I always believe maybe this record's going to go, but I don't want to be huge. I just want to put out records that I like and keep doing what I'm doing. I don't really have some grand plan. I kind of feel like with records too, you have to believe they're going to change the world. 
Yeah. It's what it means to make a record. If you don't think that by the time you're, you know, when you're printing it off, you probably shouldn't print it off. You know what I mean? Like, and then there's the whole, like, put the record out and then that sinking feeling that you realize it's not going to change the world. But that's okay too, right? You, it's just all part of it. I feel like, honestly, I think about that a lot when I put out records because I still have that every time. I'm like, this is it. This is going to be the one that just like breaks the doors open. And then I'm like, well, would I want that? How would that work out? And then ultimately it's not what happens with my record. But that's okay because everything grows. And you find your way, you know. As you said, it's like, it's interesting to hear you say that because it's like a deep faith in yourself. And you, a deep faith that if you listen to yourself, if you listen to your what you're supposed to be doing, and you trust yourself in front of that audience. Trust your knowledge of the audience. Yes. And it will be... Because we're, we're talking about the record a little bit. But mostly what we're talking about is that idea of like, when the lights are on, and the lights are on you, you're going to show up. You're the ace on the mound, as, as my brother says. No, it's true. <laughs> the ace on the mound, right? Like, you don't, you're not... That, that pressure isn't something that you don't turn away from. In fact, you walk into it. You like the unknown. You love an unknown audience of Miramichi. I love it. I, I think that's, love re- that's reading so a room. interesting. Right. And not necessarily playing to fans all the time. People who know your work, who are saying, you want to win them over from the first minute to the last minute. Yeah. I like both. I love it. Like I loved playing Berwick the other night. If I think of all the shows on this little run I've done, PEI was cool, but it was my first show of the tour and I'd flown in and I was, my first show is never the best, but then I did these nights at the Carlton, and they were, each one were really special, but then something happened when I hit Berwick. I had done an early show at the Carlton that day, so I did a 2 p.m. matinee, because we'd sold out the first two night shows, so Campbell was like, hey, maybe you can do a matinee show and still get to Berwick on time. So we sold out that and then sold Berwick out. And I was like, by the time I got to Berwick, after playing a show that day and a show the night before and the night before and the night before, by the time I got to Berwick. By the time I got to Berwick. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> that was probably the highlight of the tour so far. And then when I got to Cape Breton, I did a show at the Iona Heights Inn. And I that sold out. So then Rory Murphy goes, let's do an early show, a 2 p.m. show. By the time I got to Bur- or Cape Breton, to Iona, that was nutso magutso. And then I played a show that night. This is the first time this has happened to me. When I ended the show, after all those shows in a row, double shows a day, and I'm talking two sets of shows, so I'm not doing like a 40-minute set. I'm doing an hour and a half set, taking a break, another hour and a half set. No, it's three hours every time? Not always, but I would get oh, so into it. Oh, my goodness. So by the time I was done of my final show at Iona, I couldn't, my hand was cramping up and I couldn't have done one more song. And I actually told the audience, I, I got to go. And I went up to the room and I was shivering. I was like, I took this too far and I knew I did. I said, please, I just texted um, Darren or Liz. I said, can you please get me a banana? I knew I needed a banana. I was yeah. like cramping and I got in a warm shower and I was like trembling and I was like, okay, I'm mortal. That's when it hit me that right. I was mortal because I really thought I was immortal. I still to this day think the rules don't apply. uh, Well, because you had a stroke on stage. Yeah, and I think the rules don't apply to me. Even after the stroke on stage. Oh, yeah. We have forgetters in our brain. Otherwise, if we didn't have forgetters in our brain, that was only how many years ago? Six or seven years (laughs) ago, yeah. Like, I will probably die on stage, but like, I know we have forgetters in our brain. Otherwise, we would feel the pain, the horrific pain of things like death, longing for someone, or a breakup that broke, that just killed you or anything like that. We our forgetters have to kick in as a survival instinct. And so my forgetters have kicked in over the stroke I had. 
and I know I probably shouldn't have pushed things that hard, but I come from the Bruce Springsteen School of Entertainment, where every show needs to be have every show needs to have a sense of redemption, or I feel like I failed the audience. I have this weird Catholic debt I have to people, where I was raised very Catholic, that I don't want to let any of them. I don't want to let the audience down, and. If I felt like I phoned it in, I would feel so bad at myself. I feel really guilty when people pay, and they paid, last night they paid 40 bucks a ticket. You know, I feel guilty if they paid 30, whatever they pay. I'm always shocked that they paid that money and showed up. And I think, man, they might have had to get a babysitter. They could have stayed home and watched Succession on HBO. They could have done so many other things. They chose to come see me. So I have this tremendous sense of debt that I can't get rid of. And I feel guilty that they came to see me and I'm like, I have to do the greatest show in the world. Like I would never phone in a show. So every show I end in sweat, redemption, it's the right. Springsteen school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, have it's to... kind of the school of all the greats, right? It is, it's yeah. kind of like lay it on the line because that's what it's, that's what entertainment is at its purest form kind of is. Remember that I, song I by find, Triumph, Lay It on the Line? Yeah, I do. <laughs> okay, I, but find, go on. I find it interesting, though, because you get to redemption every night in a different way. Yes. That's what's kind of cool, right? Like, a lot of people have set lists. They know how to get there. It's a scripted yeah. redemption, let's say. It's dialed in. It's honed in. What I find interesting about your show now is that you're going into, you're going into it not knowing how you're going to get there, but determined to get there. Yes, like every night I need to make up a song on stage and it'll happen and I don't know when it's going to happen. But I like it to be super meta where I'm playing and I've talked about certain things and somebody in the front row. And then I use this weird form of subterfuge where I start playing a song and they didn't even know what's happening, but I'm singing about what's happening there. And then at that moment, the people out. in the front, they're figuring out and they're like, where is this song even coming from? And then it has a strong chorus that's just gifted to me from God or wherever music comes from. And then I do another verse and people are like, their minds are like, what, how, right. wait, did you have that written? And they always have these questions. I'm like, no, it's just magic. What I love <laughs> too, I love too, but is that if one, one could look at it and see it as an eccentric form. Right, like it's an eccentric show. Yeah. Oh, totally. Like it's it's out there. That's why I love the best it so compliment much. that people say to me after they see me is, "I don't know what I just saw." And well, I'm like, Perfect. "This is what's so great about it is that you're playing in Miramichi, you're playing in Iona, you're playing in Berwick." Yeah. Right. Like you're th you're, we underestimate audiences all of the time. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes, I do. You, we underestimate what people kind of want in a show. They're like, oh, yeah, you know, people in a, in small town Maritimes, they want three and a half minute songs that they know from the radio. Yeah, You know what I'm saying? Like, we I think just, they're not that sophisticated sometimes. Man, it's an incredible, <laughs> and I just mean that in any audience, not just my home audience. I mean, this is where I'm from. I love these people. I'm, I just think that sometimes we think about the show as being, we limit it. To being, it's got to be this. It's got to be hits. It's got to be this. And now yeah. you're selling out these venues, not by way of, and there are songs that they recognize, no doubt. But what they're there for is that redemption and that, and those crazy meta moments and all of these like improvised forms of entertainment, which they're not familiar with. They're no. there by word of mouth. That's and not, they're like, not even not... getting the songs they know because I always have so many new songs. Right. So I will come out and do 10 new songs and tell them, oh, I just wrote this last week. Check this out. I don't even know where this one came from. And I'll do some weird rambling into it. And then the song starts and something. But I want to take them on this journey. And the story is going to be insane. 
And I don't even know sometimes where the story is going to go. But some of the stories are, are fleshed out because I've done them. And I'm, I can stumble onto that story. And the story is an art piece in itself. Like I have a story I'm doing on this tour right now about John Prine that is a true story about the time I drove him to the Disney store. And it, I have that story down. It's like an art piece. It's part of the show. You don't know where it's going to fall, but it falls in the show. And I know it's going to yeah, kill. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I right. know yeah, it's yeah. going to kill. Like I've really worked it out, but I don't have a, not everything's like that. Do you yeah, know yeah, what yeah, I mean? yeah. No, absolutely. You have your set pieces, but then you have all this freedom. I, this, I guess what I mean is I, I just appreciate the fact that you doing what you do proves to entertainers and to promoters and to audiences that the, that the, how we perceive entertainment can be so much wider than sometimes we think it needs to yes. be. Yes. Well, the reason is, is because I'm part and parcel of everything I listened to and what I saw. So as a kid, I was going to the Hollywood Bowl with my Uncle Louie, who was from North Sydney in Cape Breton, and he moved down because it was no place for a gay man to be in the early 60s. It was like broke back mountain type stuff like up there. So he moved down where he could be more proud of his gayness and be out living in Los Angeles. And he was a genius piano player. And he took me to the Hollywood Bowl to see Julian Bream. And that was my first concert experience as classical guitarist, all alone on stage with a single spotlight at the Hollywood Bowl. And he took me to see Ella Fitzgerald, Sarah Vaughn, Carmen McRae, took me to see the play Hair, took me to see Jesus Christ Superstar, took me to see Godspell. He loved whoa, theater. Whoa, whoa. So you and had so, heavy cultural education. And he bought me the Beatles um, Rubber Soul right when it came out and then Revolver when it came out. And he bought these records for me and he would turn me on to them and I'd listen to them. And he took me to see Oliver, you know, the movie Oliver. And then he would have me sing the songs at his recitals because he'd have all these food voice glorious food. Yeah. What more and that'll affect you. <laughs> and then when I heard a Steve Martin record and when I saw Robin I wondered, Williams. I wanted to ask you about Steve Martin. That's so interesting. I like I never, We've never talked about Steve Martin, you and I, or Robin Williams. I, I, memorized, I wondered how much comedians have played into what you Oh, I memorized, can. you know, are you small? because we're going to have to measure you. And the way they measure you is... I mean, I had everything down. And as a kid, you know, okay. I went over to this chick's house the other night, and she had the best pussy I have ever had. Oh, come on. That makes me sick. I was talking about her cat. You can't say anything these days, and people don't take it the wrong way. But that cat was the best fuck I ever had. <laughs> <laughs> Like that, all those bits that Steve Martin would do on those records, I knew every one of them. I'm so mad at my mother. She's 110 years old. And the other day she called me up and she wanted some money for some food. Then she wanted me to bring her barbells up to the attic. I was like, you move them. <laughs> like, call it. Do you remember all those I albums? Wondered, I wondered. I was that was later. That was earlier than me. Yeah, see, I'm Robin 61. Williams. I'm yeah. Robin Williams and like Jim Carrey. I love but, Jim Carrey. But for the same, this, they did the same, and Pee Wee Herman, and, you know, Pee Wee Herman. Of course. For All me, those guys were my heroes. For me, Pee Wee Herman, Ace, you know, like, and Jim Carrey. Those were, and Robin Williams. Those were my three giants. Steve Martin, I have always loved, and I had a sense that, you know, and I've, I've loved him more as a later, in his later, in the movies, basically, not the tapes as much. One of the coolest things is to hear him read his book, Born Standing Up, if you have a long drive. He has this book, Born Standing Up, and it's his whole story. But hearing him read it 
makes it so much better. And he was a magician and, you know, yeah. all the gigs he slogged, slogged through. That's another thing people forget if you're out here listening to this podcast right now is when you see somebody, be it Springsteen or Neil Young or anybody you're talking about today, they had to, they had to lift amps upstairs, yeah, get yeah. stiffed by clubs, get turned down by record labels and all these different things. Like you really... They weren't just born rock stars. No, man. We, I was just talking about this with Tara Lightfoot. I mean, I love Tara. Tara is amazing, right? And, and yeah. things happen at the right time. They happen when they're supposed to happen, right? Like you getting that gig in front of Lucinda Williams. That's what you had to learn at that time. And then you then went, your mind did the thing where you went, I got to shut down those voices. And now, you know what I mean? Like, I just feel like that slog. I think about those opportunities when they come too early. Yes. When you're not ready for them and you and you think they're the greatest thing in the world and then they end up can really hurt you if they don't yeah if you don't have the sense to be like okay you know what it's okay or like to be okay with failure because sometimes they happen early and you fail i you don't believe feel like i'm you... lucky that mine came later and i had to re i believe i really earned what i have yeah yeah like nothing was handed to me i had to, i have had nothing but rejection and I kept going. Well, the interesting thing <laughs> is, is that you're still going based on a model that is kind of rejection free at this point. Cause it's your own model. It doesn't, you're yeah. going directly to these people. You're going direct to fans. There's not that many middle, middle people in your And business. I don't care anymore. So like if somebody wants me to do something that I don't want to do, I have no problem saying no anymore about something like if a gig doesn't have the vibe I want or it doesn't have the soul that I'm looking for. I'm like, no, I don't want to go back there. I don't want to do that. I'm learning now to just be like, no, I'm going to pick and choose where I go. And I don't want to do something that just doesn't seem like it serves my soul. And what is the essential part? Like when you look at a, at a, at a gig, cause we were talking about, you can handle a lot of variants. Yeah. You can handle bad PAs. You can handle strange kind of. Well, I think that setup. there's like three reasons to take a gig. Okay. And I think what they are is number one, is it a good hang? Meaning, are you going to be backstage at Mariposa Folk Festival in Aurelia and then you're going to be hanging out with David Miles backstage because he's also on the bill and you haven't seen him in a long time or Joel Plaskett or Danny Michelle or Tara Lightfoot or uh, this new girl named Tara Spencer who's amazing, who's in Berwick or um, Coco Love Alcorn, all these friends. Am I going to see them? Are they going to be there? And am I, am I going to get to shake hands once again with Gordon Lightfoot when, wonder of all wonders, this guy comes out to do a tweener? Are you kidding me? I don't care who you are as a headliner. That's your tweener because a tweener is one of the most humiliating gigs you can ever have. And for those out there that don't know what a tweener is, it's you're sent out on stage as a rodeo clown whilst they set up the stage for the headliner to keep people occupied while they're changing their beer cups and going some going to the loo. They're moving in and out. And you're on the side stage trying to go, hello, my baby. Hello, my darling. But can you imagine every time um, Mariposa comes one time during that festival Gordon Lightfoot goes I'm going to be the tweener so say you're the headliner I don't care who you are whether you're a bare naked ladies all of a sudden Gordon Lightfoot comes out and then all of a sudden he's there on stage and you hear this carefree highway and everybody's singing and you're like what and I'm all, done I'm done he's like here's a short song I'll end on the legend lives on on the Chippewa down on the big lake and then he goes oh we got time for one more he goes I can see you're lying back in her sat and then he walks off stage and then bare naked ladies are like oh hi yeah. 
Chinese food or whatever yeah, yeah. the song is, tough, you know? Tough freaking act to follow, man. I know. So that's a reason to take okay. a gig is the hang. Yeah. Number two is, is it going to be... So the hang's good. The money might not be that good, but the hang's good. It's like every once in a while, like, oh, it's a benefit gig, but I know the hang's going to be amazing. Or So number two, not that they're in the order of preference, a reason to take a gig is, um, is it going to build your career? Like sometimes you get an opportunity and you know it's a win-win situation. I'll take it in a second. I would pay to do the gig. Like recently I just played... Three weeks ago, I opened for my friend Todd Snyder, and we played um, Grand Rapids and Chicago. And I knew I'd play the Park West Theater in Chicago, and we'd have 700 people sold out. And Todd Snyder's crowd is, I knew they would like what I do because we're kind of similar but not similar. But he's a good friend of mine. I love yeah. him. And I went, oh, Yes, I immediately, I don't even have to think about it because I know, then I tell my booking agent, book a show at Space in Evanston, Illinois, and I'll sell it out then, which we're just about selling it out now because I just Because you did that, you knew you'd gain enough of those people if you're good. Yeah, so that's a no-brainer. Then the other thing is just flat out money. One time I got offered 10 grand to play 15 minutes um, at a Toronto Blue Jays silent auction in Toronto and it was all these rich people. And this girl had seen me and said, hey, um, will you come play the silent auction and sing for these people? It'll be great. And we'll give you 10 grand and you only play 15 minutes. I'm like, yeah. For people out there listening, you're like, 10 grand, are you kidding me? Like, that's what's so weird about this business. But we had to do hundreds of gigs for nothing to get yeah, to yeah, that yeah. point. So they offered me 10 grand. And I'm telling you, that 15 minutes was the worst 15 minutes <laughs> because nobody was listening. And I felt like it was the Ferris you Bueller scene the where the clock was going the backwards. 10, you earned the 10K. Yeah, I was you like, how long 10K. does it take yeah. for 15 minutes to go? It was like I was a kid back in elementary school where you're just waiting, is it ever going to end? And I had to go back to my hotel that night to wash the scent of horror off of me. I just was like, this was horrible. I just did it for the money. Yeah, but the yeah. money was good. I'm not complaining, but it was like, it wasn't fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's, and that's so interesting how they don't correlate. Sometimes no. you get paid the you know good money to do those fifteen minute gigs, and they can feel so painful. But I know. you've come from a place where you've been building it for so long that you yeah. don't feel like you can say no to that much money because you know that that helps you then do all those other gigs. Oh yeah, it goes in the coffer that then builds that you can then go on the road and. And what else is cool about it? You go, hey, book me two nights at the Dakota. Yeah, because right. Dakota's like people laugh. They always go, "What's your favorite room?" I always go, "The Dakota." There's something about going downstairs and it only fits about 110 people It's and low ceilings. For what I do, it's like everybody's just focused. It's I. It's not a church. It's like they have a bar. People are drinking. It's not, you don't have to be pin drop quiet. I don't want it where it's just so reverent in a church. I hate churches. Like, you know, everybody's like, it's a church. It's so cool. I'm like, oh, kill me now. You want a looseness in the audience. Yeah. I want a little bit of a punk rock vibe. Yeah, yeah, right. And a little bit, I don't, I always hate it when people are like, oh, it's going to be my big show and I'm going to do the Rebecca Cone. It's like, you have all this pressure on it. It's never that fun as right. it is just going to the Carlton and killing it three nights in a yeah, row. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> I just love that intimacy because it relies on, what for you, it, need, it rely, that show is, is about the interaction. 
Yeah. You don't have the looseness in the audience. Classified talks about that a lot too, right? Like he doesn't, he's now doing kind of smaller shows, more like where he's getting into how the songs are written, less like full on hip hop party shows, but he still wants people to be loose. He still wants, he doesn't, he's kind of like, why would I want to go in a theater? I'm not sure about this. Like, yeah, you know what I mean? I want to make sure that people still feel chill and they can laugh and have a drink and whatever and get into it. So I find that really, it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, it makes total sense because mm-hmm. it's part of the show. Like, I've done so many theater gigs, I never have as much fun at those. Right. I just don't. But then, if you tell me I can do... If if I could do seven nights in a row at the Dakota, I would do that rather than play wow. a theater. Because I love, by the weirdness that will happen by night seven, because there'll be repeat offenders coming back and stuff. And you don't get tired. Me, no. I mean, I did in Cape Breton, like I said the other night, but that's Hit because I was doing seven hours. And you're sober. Sober, yeah. For how many years now? It'll be uh, on November 30th. I don't even remember. I have to look at my phone. <laughs> it's been a Is while, that though. funny? Yeah, what would it it's be? Amazing. I, plus, I have this 12-step app. What's that say? I don't have my glasses on. 16.96 years. Yeah. Amazing. So... I, Almost 17 years, you're just around the corner. I haven't had a drink beautiful, beautiful. or a snort of cocaine in that many years. <laughs> and do you see that as being a pivotal turning point in your life? It really helped me because when I would drink, I loved doing coke. And if I don't drink, I did these experiments. I would. It was really easy for me not to drink. I wasn't like the kind of guy who woke up and would start drinking vodka. I wasn't the days of wine and roses, Jack Lemon. I was more like, um, let's go out and have a great time. And then I'd have a couple drinks. And then my friends would call it bad idea guy. Bad idea guy would appear and I go, let's get an eight ball of Coke and go to Mexico. And then I would go MIA because it would just be like, you know, those movies where everything goes fast forward or those scenes in Breaking Bad where it'd be like sun up, sun down, sun up, sun down. <laughs> that was me. I could just easily keep going for days. So it wasn't good. I was going to die. So I would, if I wouldn't drink, like I would go 80 days easy, not drink. I go, oh, I'm not drinking right now. I'm in my self imposed rehab, I called it. And then the moment I would drink, I would go, this time I'm going to try to drink and not do Coke. Then I'll just drink. I would always get, I drank to get drunk. So I would get hammered. But it would just be a hangover. But what happened, every time I drank, i go, can we get some Coke? There right. was something the same way when some people drink, they have to have a cigarette and yeah, they wouldn't yeah, have a cigarette if they didn't do it. Right, right, right. Wow, man. But now I could eat like a CBD gummy with a small amount of THC in it, and that's fine. I, I was never a pothead, but I like that. It's like, that'll mellow me out. And what's good about that is that's... Um, all measured out and yeah, right. legal. And I have no problem with a small amount of that to just relax, go to sleep, CBD. But I want nothing to do with any pills or powders or alcohol. I have no desire to drink. I'll never drink again. Right. As long as I live, I'll never do Coke as long as I live. Like mm-hmm. I don't even go to meetings anymore or any of that. I did go to meetings and I had a sponsor and I sponsored people. And it was helpful. The 12-step program is amazing. I mean, we're not even really supposed to talk about it. It's anonymous and all that. But it's a really amazing thing that they came up with. It's like the tablets of the 12 commandments or some shit, like handed down. If you really look at it, how it works, making amends, getting rid of your character defects, it's genius for anybody to go through because we all have addictions and things. Yeah, of course. And so... It really helped me a lot. And that's the reason I'm able to function at this level and do these shows. 
because I'm not a drug addict and I'm not drunk. You never would be able to keep it up, man. Uh-uh. But they would say, well, you can't even eat a small gummy with a small amount right. of this. They would say, well, you're not really sober. Then you're California sober or whatever. And I'm fine. They can say whatever they want. Right. I don't care. I just know. I feel like I have no desire. I'm not the kind of guy. I don't smoke pot. I don't wake up smoking it, smoking pot all day. I don't. I never drink. You're extremely healthy. Extremely. For my, uh, the entire time I've known you, which is now over 10 years, you've always been super, super healthy. Yeah. And do you exercise regularly? I walk a yeah. lot. I'm a walker. Yeah. I think walking is the greatest thing. I like to do a little workout in my room. I put two chairs together and do those bar dips yeah. so my feet are up. And then I do different sets of push-ups during the day because I like to do that just to keep the inner core strong and then just walk but on shows i'm doing two sets like yeah, i you're love sweating. two sets and they'll always say do you want to do one or two and i'll go i always tell the club whatever you want this is goes back to me wanting to please i really if that club is paying me i'm like what makes you happier i always ask them that and like pat at pat dan at uh trailside music hall which by the way is a really nice beautiful venue. great guy too you know That's he always he had it at mount stewart before and yeah. now he has it um, it, this is on PEI and he owns a record store and he's just super nice. He said, since it was like a Tuesday or a Wednesday, he goes, let's just do one set. So I did long one set. I find as a musician, my first set kills and then you have to gear up to get into the second set. But if I do two sets, I sell way more merch. Interesting. Because the key is... If I can make my first set an hour rather than an hour and a half, if I make it an hour, it goes by so fast. And then everybody's like, I'm not leaving. So I'm here. I might as well get the merch. And I always go out to the merch table. In between. In between. You don't take the break. No. I go out wow, to the merch man. and I sign things because I I feel like those people came here and they – want to get something signed or they want to take a picture i really am old school about i believe i owe it to them it's, it's just interesting that you don't feel depleted socially i always kind of feel like there's a tank no i know plaskett you know, tells me he gets way too depleted yeah i mean i always kind of feel like there's a certain amount of like i find my i do the same thing i give you know what i mean like i love meeting everybody after the show yeah and then i started to start to realize like oh my gosh i needed more time to like you know fill up the tank a lot of these conversations have been better like how to fill up the tank but what I find really interesting is that socially, you've got a lot of social energy. Oh, yeah. Like my buddy Todd deplete, Snyder, he won't go easy. out. Right? Todd yeah, never yeah, a lot does. of people. Won't. Todd Snyder goes right to his bus. He yeah. doesn't meet anybody. Jewel, she, she, she does what's called a runner, and she'll have the car waiting. And when people are still cheering, they're on their feet after her encore. Say she comes out and does Who Will Save Your Soul or she yodels or something. They're still cheering. She's out the back door with her tour manager le leading her into a car that's waiting and it's gone and people still think she's yeah, there right. and she's coming out again. Van Morrison special. She's already gone. <laughs> that's great. And I'm like, and she would do meet and greets. Like people pay money yeah. to do meet and greets. I just couldn't do that to people. Like go, like my manager has wanted me to do that before. I'm yeah, like, yeah. I don't know, like... I think that's what's... I mean, it obviously <laughs> works, man. You've built personal relationships with people all over the Maritimes. And this is just just the Maritimes. This is just a region that oh, yeah. I know real well. You have the same thing going on all over America. Oh, Australia? All over Australia. I know. Ireland. I remember being in Melbourne and seeing your posters all over Melbourne. And I was like, this is the coolest thing. It's like... I've been there 20 by times. Not, by not <laughs> yeah. be, by giving, 
you you receive right you this it's totally. been it's been uh you know it's coming back to you all that love all of that social capital you put out there all well, the way i that. look at it is those people paid good money and they're like dude i just have to tell you a quick story or i need to take can we please take a picture would you sign this for our kid our kid is now a fan of yours and do you know how that makes me feel like i really feel thrilled like i'm not jaded at all you don't lose sight of that. I'm the kid still, who didn't right. make the team. Yeah, yeah. I was so emotionally scarred not making the basketball team and being bullied that the thought of somebody if if I knew, which I have hurt people's feelings before. Like I've had people say, Oh, you weren't there, you I was telling you a story and you weren't really listening, or blah, blah, blah. I've had people, you know, they write you. I don't fire back something mean. I actually feel really hurt if I know I hurt them mm. makes me feel bad you know <laughs> yeah yeah i feel you man for sure like i feel yeah, yeah. bad when i've done something wrong and lord knows i've done a million things wrong but i do feel bad oh yeah <laughs> it's just amazing that you can keep your heart intact oh yeah it's a hard business the hardest part about this is after the show after you've signed all the cds if you go back to the room and you're alone the ringing in the ears of the energy and what's weird is after i got my vaccine of the moderna each time my ears rang, it was like it found some point in my body where there was injuries or something, and it amplified that. I had a ringing in my ears after the vaccines, each one, where I was like, whoa, really? heavy ringing in my ears, and a flu-like symptoms for like 24 hours. Wow. Yeah, it was bizarre, but I'd rather be vaxxed. Right. I would much- Well, now you're out. Yeah. I can't imagine you not out doing shows. I mean, no. this is the other thing. This is like where you are at your most complete. The moment we could get the vax, I was like, sign me up. Yeah, I right. went down to Alabama and got it early because I live in Nashville. And it was really easy to drive five and a half hours south to this town called Andalusia, Alabama. My friend Mary Gauthier, she's a songwriter. No, she's amazing. Her and her girlfriend, Jamie Harris, were at a little cafe in East Nashville called Ugly Mugs. And I was walking by it one day. And they said, hey, we just got vaxxed. And I go, how? And Mary goes, go to Andalusia, Alabama, to Main Street Pharmacy. Every day there's at least 10 extra shots because people down there aren't getting it. And they go, you're not taking it from an elderly person. They're just going to waste. So I went down there with my wife, Sharon, and we got vaxxed. And then 28 days later, we went down again. And then by the time the booster came around, they were like, I was able to get it in Nashville, you know, right when I wanted it. Right. And so I'm, I've got three of those vaccines in me. The, the third dose, the booster is like a half of the amount is what they give you. Okay. But I really feel protected from it. I mean, yay science, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Part of me sometimes, though, does lay awake late at night. And I, when I'm all alone, if, if I'm all alone and she's not with me on the road, and part of me, I lay awake at night and I go, what if those anti-vaxxers are right and two years we're all dead of cancer from this? Like, what if the one guy they were following on YouTube was <laughs> actually right? right? Like that's some Charles Neston tests. movie. That's why there's tests and, you know, yeah. know, that's why they do, that's what science is about. It's no, about, I know. You know but you know what I mean? It's like the method. It's the method. You trust the method more than you trust the other. I feel like yeah. that's what you try. And and it's it's a moving target and what, you know. Here's no the definition certain. of irony. I'm sitting, I play this festival this summer, Sawtooth Music Festival in Sawtooth Valley, Idaho. So I play a lot of festivals. I've been really fortunate where I play a lot of jam band festivals and I play 
Telluride Bluegrass Fest and I play Folk Fest. For whatever reason, I'm a weird hybrid. So I play this jam band festival. Jam band festivals are like really like hippie-ish and a lot of bands are doing really long solos and there's certain bands that are big in that. So I'm playing it and this guy's talking to me. I was signing the merch and he's like, I'm not vaxxed. I'm not getting it because in America, a lot of places you don't yeah. have to have it. And they don't make you show your vaccine proof to get into these festivals. And this guy's telling me, are you kidding? I don't trust it. You don't know if what they're saying is true. And as he's telling me this, he's pulling out a bag of molly. And molly is a powder. It's like a powdery form of ecstasy. And it's called molly. And you wipe it on your gums. You stick your finger in it, wipe it on your gums, and you get this high. And I'm watching him do this. And I go, well, okay. And I'm letting him talk to him. I go, is that Molly? And he goes, yeah, you want some? And, and he's like tripping, his jaws grinding. And he goes, I go, no, that's cool. I go, where'd you get it? He goes, oh, this dude in the parking lot selling it. And I'm like, I didn't even want to tell him, so I didn't. I just wanted to hear him say it. Do you know the guy? No, people say it's pretty clean. Right. Oh, and you're worried about <laughs> Pfizer? Yeah. You're worried about Moderna? You've done your research and this is safe? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's a wild time, man. It's a wild, it's a wild time. I certainly, I was the same way. I was excited to get back to work. I was yeah. excited to get out there. I wanted to see my mom. I wanted to feel safe. I think from, you, you could know. be a really good uh, premiere in Canada if you ever wanted to. What's that? Oh, you think? Oh, thank you. I Joel apologize. and I were both saying that. I went to visit Plaskett the other day. <laughs> I don't, can you imagine? We were talking yeah. about you and I said, I'm going to see David Miles. I just got off the phone with him. I think we had talked, you and I. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we had planned about me doing this podcast and we were both professing our love for you. Joel loves you so much, has so much respect for you. He adores you. He's a great and guy. Well, we're very so close friends for sure. We were hanging out and he goes, you know, that guy would be really good in government. I go, you're right. <laughs> he would be so good. Until you're in government. You're really, it's hard, man. It is hard. I know. Like, you know it's the guy from the band? Um, it's such a hard job, man. I worked in politics for a year when I finished. I did a degree in political yeah, science. Nobody's going to love you. And when I, when I worked with those, they actually worked really hard. It's they, the they art they of really compromise. Cared. It's the art of compromise. They cared. They tried. They were on, you know. And they did all those things, and still you're dealing with really tricky situations. It didn't. It didn't make me. It made me more sympathetic to them. Both sides. I was honestly like, I was like, sure, there are lots of dishonest folks out there that do it, but the majority, the ones I worked with, were honest, hardworking people. And I thought, man, that is tough. And then when I really break it down, I'm like, I don't know if I could do it. I don't know if I could. I don't. Part of me, yeah, I love, like I love people. I love people. I love. I love this. I love where we live. I love all of this stuff. So there's part of me that's like, oh yeah, of course. Well, an example you know, but, of what oh, you would man. be like is there's a guy who was the lead singer for the band Midnight Oil. Remember that band? Yeah, Australian of course. Band? And I knew he was. Out a... well, a river yeah, yeah. flows. That guy. Yeah. He loved. <laughs> Great like, impression. He's incredible. Yeah, yeah. And the desert. Oak. Crazy song, by the way, when you <laughs> listen to that song, song and break it down. has come. Wow. So he song. gets into politics. He left so hated and i was like this guy was so beloved as this australia's musician but he was like it's you have to compromise and he realized that getting asked barack obama you mm -hmm. know like going in and what you leave you it, politics is politics it's the it's the art of compromise yeah, it's yeah. the art of trying to meet people and giving up 10 percent of you have what they have trying to find a way until you don't you're not even the same person you were when you started because you couldn't go in there and get everybody 
that yeah, yeah, we're yeah. just too divided. You wouldn't be moving forward. And now everybody has a platform in which to spin their narrative. The, just me looking on Facebook looks totally different than when you look on Facebook or me looking yeah, on yeah. Instagram. Yeah, yeah. So you have to look at, you have to, what we've forgotten is to put ourselves in someone else's shoes and realize, like just Miramichi last night, talking to a couple of these people. It's one of the great benefits of our jobs. It's one of the things I hold closest. One of the things I think is the most important is the fact that I've we've toured around the world and we've had real conversations with people that aren't based on the internet. Because you have conversations with people like you did last night. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I think about those You're conversations right. all the time and how much more valuable they are than 99% of the stuff I read on Twitter. And I'm like, no, this is what people are thinking about. People who their... don't just live in a blue bubble, as we call it. Right, right. In the States. Right. For you guys, it would be a... Well, the blues are the conservatives. Blues are the conservatives, the, sorry, yeah. yeah. The, the red the is the liberal. The orange are the NDP. I became friends with a MP who's in Oakville, Ontario, Burlington, Ontario yeah. area, and her name's Pam DeMoff, D-A-M-O-F-F. Anyway, she's like a fan of my music and comes to my shows, and so she was going to be in Ottawa one day because she has to go there a lot, and she said, hey, I'm going to try to um, introduce you to Trudeau. And I was like, oh, that would be so cool. And she goes, either way, you can come in and watch Parliament in session. So I went there and she goes, but you got to wear a tie and, you know, you can't wear a hat and blah, blah, blah. So I show up and I meet up with her and she just got reelected, by the way. And so Trudeau, Trudeau had to get called out. There was something that happened that day, so he had to leave. And so I didn't get to meet him, but she was there and I'm there in Parliament watching this go on. And I, it was so neat for me to be inside there and watching people yell while it's going on and give their point of view. And then I, they had a break, so I was. She let me go. What I call backstage, where everybody goes. I'm in this conversation with this guy named Jagmeet Singh, and he was so nice to me. Was asking me about yeah. my music, leader of the NDP, NDPs. Yeah. And when I left, you're talking to somebody who's a dual citizen. However, I'm, I'm a Californian. You know, for all intents and purposes. I have a Canadian passport, but I was raised in Southern California. My mom was from North Sydney. My dad from uh, Winnipeg. He was in the RCAF, met my mom. She was teaching in Montreal. And then I was born in Halifax, and then we left. Yeah, right. So, but I was raised with a sense of Canadian-ness, if that's such a word, meaning my parents were very Canadian, very Catholic, and, you know, upright citizens brigade you know right, okay. you're gonna go by the rules and <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah, yeah, like yeah. very canadian they always root would cheer for canada in the olympics and they'd always talk about canada and we would go home and visit the cousins and everything and they were more like following the rules like when you come to canada people are less apt to walk against a red light as yeah, 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 States, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and they're more willing to go, oh no, we're all in this together. Of course we're going to get vaccinated. Yes, I'll show you my Vax card. Yes, I'll wear a mask. Things like that. Compliant. Compliant. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Great word. So there I was hanging out with all these people and it gave, and I hadn't studied parliamentary system a lot. I was really into this television show on Netflix called Bert Borgen, which is really good. It's a Danish program and it's a fictional woman who's the prime minister and you really see how they work and how they make their deals and they have to, and I'm really sad that in the States we just have a two-party system because what I love about coming to Canada, I remember going over to my friend uh, Tara Cohen's house. They own the horseshoe, her and Jeff Cohen. Yeah, yeah. And I go over to their house and I do a house concert for them. 
and it was election night and nobody was hating on each other. One guy was there going, oh, I'm voting conservative this year. They weren't hating him. The other guy's going, oh, I'm liberal. Oh, I'm NDP, I'm Greens. Um, I mean, nobody was the far right one, the whatever that's yeah, called, yeah, yeah. but PCP or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but they were like, basically the way I was looking at it, you had, <laughs> you had four parties, really. You had you know Green, which wasn't getting a lot of votes. You had NDP that was getting some. And then you had, of course, the liberal and the conservative. But they really weren't hating each other. And the guy who said, oh, I'm voting conservative this time. I'm worried about my taxes, blah, blah, blah. But it wasn't, they're conservative is like our Joe Biden. Right, yeah, right, right, right. And I thought that was really interesting. And George Washington always said that his famous quote was, I fear we're going to become a two-party system. Remember when we had the Whigs, Whig party and everything? Because, and it's going to be the death of the country because it's going to be too divisive because you'll just have these two parties. And so I guess my point was, I look at Facebook or Instagram and I'm seeing something different. So I got to remember, I try to really train myself every day, say a quick prayer of remember to put myself in somebody else's shoes and listen. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's the key, man. I mean, that's just it. That's it. Before you start jumping down people's throats and before you go there, take a second. Yeah, just take a second. Yes. That's, that's the big lesson. It's like, just breathe for a sec. Listen. Listen to where people are coming from. Try to understand. Before you try to be understood, try to understand where someone else is coming from. And it makes a huge, huge difference. And some people call it like politeness. Yeah. But it's not unhealthy. It tends to lead to people being able to work together a lot better if you just give a bit of space for people to express themselves. And I don't so, think people are as mean in Canada. However, meanness is sort of like a virus and can spread across borders due to social media now. And I'm finding there is a, a bit more of contentiousness between people, even north of the U.S. But where I live, it's, it's there's a real uh, divide. Right. And I'm trying to make my shows bridge that. I've tried on a lot of different suits on yeah, stage. Yeah, yeah, of course. I've I tried bet. on the punk rock suit. I've tried on the suit of denigrating Trump from the stage. I've done it all. And I, what I realized was choir preach or whatever. And I was just doing Yeah, right. What do I want to do? I, I want to build a bridge. I want to find some some middle ground where people can be. Because getting back to what we're even talking about, which is music and art, which well, is what your show's about. You're trying to hit the thing exactly that's common yeah. to everybody. We forget that there are still things that are common. Yes. Right? We list the things that are that we have that are different, that we where we differ all the time. And the vaccine's a great example. Or we hear of somebody who loves guns that, that Exactly that but, goes but to the shooting range. But I'm guaranteeing you that guy that goes to the shooting range that may have voted for Trump because he was worried about the Second Amendment, he might be very helpful if your car was broken down and you're there. He's gonna be like, Oh, let me I, unless he's just a hateful person and a racist. But for the most part, I really believe still people want to help people. So at my shows, I try to make light of that and bring people right. together on what we have in common. And I do this thing on stage where I become a motivational speaker. I never know exactly how it's going to come out, but I start talking about stuff about how I know you're inundated with so much negativity, but let's all be hippies for a minute. Come on, it'll feel really dumb. Who wants to do it with me? Who wants to be an idiot? And they're like, I'll do it. I'll go, okay, let's all breathe in and breathe in positivity. 
now let out the negative. And I go, just let it out. Now breathe in love. And they breathe in love. I go, I know this is so lame, but do it with me. Be lame with me. And they're like, all right. And then I go, see how you feel now? I'm no longer a folk singer. I'm a goddamn motivational speaker. Fuck music. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> I throw my CDs on the ground or whatever. And people are laughing afterwards, though. They'll come up and go, you know what? You really helped me. It feels good, man. You got to let love in, yeah. into, into your heart. I mean, it really is. Like, it sounds so cheesy. And the more, the, the older I get, the, basically the cheesier I get on that stuff. Oh, totally. Because I just, because I, I am, I am like that. If you don't let, the, if you don't let love in, man, you're, it's going to be, and that's what closes people off and you can see it. They forgot to let love in. It. They really don't. And, and when, when that starts to take over. It's and I've forgotten to, to let crack. love in. It's a hard nut to crack. You can't. It's really difficult to to speak openly, to get anywhere, to move forward together as people close off, and it happens. But music is a big uniter. Oh, buddy, it's amazing. It always has been. It's always has. It always has been. You know, it always yeah. has provided. That's why we got into it. That's why I love it. That's why I didn't decide to do politics because I loved that music could unite people in a way and could motivate people and bring people together. Did in a you way think that about felt- doing politics? Big time. Really? I did, yeah. How I close thought, did oh, you get? I thought, no, I mean, I, well, I worked in it, you know, and then I left. I thought I'd go to law what school. What did you do? And I did this internship where I worked half the year for the government, half the year for the opposition. So I worked for a liberal for half the year and then a conservative for half the year. Whoa. And I, yeah. And, it was and this was an internship? They told you you had to do yeah, both yeah. sides? Yeah, yeah, You switch sides. Tell me what you learned working for the conservatives. Like, were there, did you glean anything from that that you took away that you still use? Well, I can, you got to understand, the funny thing is I came in radical radically of course activist, ndp or green know? or yeah basically you know i'd come right from university i'd gone to you know the ftaa protests like all the big pro i was in there that's what i was doing so it was very interesting and what i found was especially i mean i think it varies it varies with every party you get people who are quite difficult and quite egotistical and sometimes dishonest in all the, in the parties you know People are in it for themselves. I worked for a guy who was, he just is retiring now. It's a guy named Norm Miller. He was a very decent guy. He loved his constituents. He was representing his constituents. He would go to bat for them. Most of them were working class people who lived in Perry Sound, Muskoka. And a lot of their concerns were that most of the people who lived in that riding were working class. And then there was a huge inundation of cottagers it's one of the where all the biggest cottages in canada are from toronto right all the richest cottages so property taxes all of these there's like services for two different worlds all the people who are serving and live through the winter have certain concerns and then there's a huge upper class that arrives for the summer months in these giant cottages (laughs) that's just you're just taking care of people's concerns at that point so much of it's managerial we forget we take these wedge issues and make them 99% of the argument when really 99% of what they're doing is making sure that everything's operating okay, that people's concerns are okay. They're dealing with making sure that, you know, people who owe money to their their, their, their spouse yeah. or like family responsibility payments, workers' compensation, all these things that no one even talks about. That's That takes up a huge portion of their constituency. And people, and often it's like whether the constituency runs well, whether they show up, whether they actually listen to people. That's what, that's what kind of is, it's not like the wedge issues. He and I, sure, we probably disagreed on certain things. Did they do wedge issues a lot up here too? Oh yeah. They they, did. It tends to be the the things that kind of like create the most of the conversation, which I think is important because it, you know, it's important to talk about issues. I love that stuff too, but it's also important to realize that like a lot of politics is just boring. 
boring, boring management of public money. Now, how old are you, you know, now? 41. And what are your thoughts now at the age of 41 being a father and married and owning a house? Do you look at things differently? Are you still as radical as you once were? I don't know. I feel like I'm, I feel it's hilarious. <laughs> Great question. I, I got to speak to my kids. Oh no, I'm good. I, you know what? I feel I, this is how I always, it's amazing that you asked this because I always feel like, and I'm sure you feel this too, like, but I'm a radical. Uh-huh. How could you say that? You know what I mean? Yes. Like I don't necessarily see eye to eye sometimes with, with how things are argued or the, or, or the way that, that conversations take place. Let's just put it that way. Uh, but I associate in my mind, I'm radical. Yes. I'm a, I'm a radical lover of all people. That's like the fundamental part of me. It's like, I will go to bat for you. Yeah, I don't, you know what I mean? Like, and Do you get angry when people have a different, like, do you have a technique you use? Like, if somebody, like, has this abhorrent political view, how do you handle that? I and try to converse. To I try to talk. I just try to converse. It happens. It do happens in Socratic my regular life. Or what do you do? Or do you just let them talk themselves into a corner or do you interview them? No, or? I kind of like try to express my opinion and uh-huh. hear them out and then try to find some common ground. Well, we both love our kids. We both want right. safe, good schools. We both want clean water. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, what so do you we get a starting point? What do we want? What do we, where do we differ? Okay. You don't believe in this. You don't believe in same sex marriage. Well, I certainly do. Okay. Do you own so a gun? We can, do I own a gun? No, yeah. no. I don't, I don't either, again. but I, I love, I mean, I'm kind of getting into hunting. You know what I mean? I suspect I will probably get into hunting in the next couple of years. I live, I'm in the woods all the time. A lot of my friends hunt. I love my friends who hunt. They're like some of the most dedicated outdoors people I know. Yeah. They're very, you know, it's awesome. And so I could own a gun and would that make me any less radical? No. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. this is the thing we need to get over because you hunt doesn't mean that you don't believe in climate change. Right. We make these crazy assumptions about people. No one wants to be, no one wants to be uh, generalized or no. stereotyped. It's like what we're supposed to be learning, but we still do it. What do you think? If you could say, did, well, will we take away anything from the Trump years that you could say did anything good happen from that? I mean, that was tough. No, I know. That's I what mean, I'm talking I'm about. Because this is like the, the toughest thing. Was there anything? Well, he lost. Yeah, but I mean, was there anything good that did, by him losing, do you think that it made people, I guess what I'm trying to say is, did we learn anything? Did we avoid? I don't, I haven't been down to the States enough. I sometimes, I don't know if we did. I saw because I saw a Trump flag like, the other day. No, I feel like, and, no, you didn't. I swear to you. Wow. That's right next to the New Brunswick I mean, flag. I think things can ramp up, but I think that things ramp up when people, you know, it's, it's a bit, it's terrifying for sure. I, I, there was so many levels where that was hurtful. Yeah. You know I mean? Again, like I think I'm not an American. I can't even sense it on a personal level. But when I see that there's one thing there was so you're raising kids i'm raising kids yeah you don't want to think that that kind of behavior wins do you feel you like- don't want to think that ego egoism and chauvinism and power and all you know all of those things crassness just I f- so crass so mean i so feel like mean he I- was not i feel like he was not the cause of it i feel like he was like a pimple that showed up and i think what happened and this is my own idea 
I feel like the people that were like the hunters and the blue collar workers were starting to feel talked down to by a lot of super woke lefties that were from bigger cities bringing their ideas in and they were feeling like they were being condescended to. And so he, along came this drunk guy at the end of the bar, even though he didn't drink, but he was like the drunk guy at the end of the bar going, you know what I'd do? Yeah, right. And they were like, you should be president yeah, right. in a weird way. And I feel like that's what he may have taught us. That was my point I was getting. I was trying to, I wanted you right. to say that. It's like maybe out of all this, what we learned was, we better really listen to the other side. Man, or well, this I think can I just think that we need to be really aware. There's a few, absolutely. I mean, no one wants to be generalized. Everybody deserves some a little time on the microphone. You know what I'm saying? And, totally. and so, and and we don't think, and we think that rural voices aren't given that much time. And we in fact, think of people, them sometimes as uneducated. We always do. Yeah. And if you look at if you look at uh, the polit the politics of Canada or America, the divide is rural urban. It's rural urban. It's not conservative liberal like or. You're right. Let's look at the map. As and we so what what there. is it? What is it? Well, well, you know, we travel through these zones. We travel, and well, you know, our resources come from rural communities, and they that employs people. So you know, if you live in the city, I'm not. The city's great too. I love the city. It has so much to offer. And as a new Canadian, that's that's where people arrive and land and and make a great life. We need cities. Cities are awesome, but it's also important for cities to realize that things don't just arrive at their at a grocery store or at the at the at a at you know at Home Hardware in downtown. They come from a mill. Exactly. They and and that employs people. And those people aren't bad people. They in fact provided that wood that you just used to build your house. It's just you don't need to see the mill because you live in the city. You, yeah, you I'm just I'm sitting saying? at the like, table going, is this salmon farm raised? What about the Dijonet sauce? Can you tell me a little bit about that? Oh, did you read that New Yorker article? And then I could just, go play a, a show and be at a Tim Hortons talking to somebody. But we still consume. We're all consuming. We're in the city. We're still consuming the same fish and the same. So maybe it's know. different languages and we have to learn and we have to understand maybe they're not speaking. Uh, not everybody's speaking this language. You and I are really fortunate that, you know, we've been to whatever, Australia, we go, we travel around and we're back there talking to people, promoters, club owners. And I'm seeing, I'm trying to see other people that are, have a much different point of view, but I'm learning to speak their language in a way so I can have a conversation. I can't just sit there and go. No, no, for sure, man. And you're going to play in, you play in military towns and you play in industrial yeah. towns, you play in mining towns and you've got to talk to them and you've got to figure them out and you got to listen and, and you listen, you know, and, and there's, and there's all of these things. And we tend to go, oh, well, you know, they have, they like to hunt or they have guns and this, or they are, you know, it's well, so like much you of could... it, so much of it's fear on both sides. And a lot of people in those communities are fearful, and and I and I'm not saying that everybody's. I'm not saying that they're all they're all, they have the an elevated point of view. There's lots of racists in the country too, There's, yeah. and, and that's horrible. But what do you do? Well, you you need. They're not going away, so you need to make them less. You need to. We need to sh basically show people a way forward. They they. There's nothing to be afraid of. There, you can be in a different place. You go to rural China; it's the same way. Like it's it's called it's like they have, it's people yeah. have not been exposed to difference. 
And so difference looks scary. And you, so it requires some time to go, okay, this is what di difference is okay. Trans people are great. Gay people are great. Black people are great. Give them some time, man. You don't have to be so scared. People are scared when they haven't seen anything that's different. You know what I'm saying? Totally. And so in, in, in some in small towns, they haven't changed for a long time. It's the same thing about, I find it ironic because we will travel to these places. We want to go to the most, when we're in Thailand or when we're in China, we go to the most rural places and we're like, we're so, they've never seen a white person ever. And it's so amazing. <laughs> but really it's like probably super xenophobic. It's probably, yes. you know what I mean? Like, really, that's what it means. Like, they, they have never experienced difference. It's not necessarily something to be elevated. It's amazing when you get on a subway in Toronto and people are from all over the world and it works. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's exceptional. So it's like, that's, I just went on a rant. But no, that's kind of like how it. I feel. So if you were to say, like, you could just say, you could even specify it by fans of people. Like, if you go... Stomping Tom Connors, a man of the people, playing his shows. Gordon Lightfoot, more of a thinking man of the people. Do you know what I mean? Stomping yeah, yeah. Tom, like when you go down a rabbit hole and you're looking at these shows he would play, the guy was killing it, man. He's Telling he's these king. stories, the you know, from PEI and taking stuff all over and singing songs about potatoes that are funny. And then you got Gordon Lightfoot, this artist. Like, I don't know, I think. And then you got Joni Mitchell. You think of all these great different people and how there's these different flavors and yeah, that's yeah. what life is. Don't and they, you and know? They bring them in. They bring them in. Entertainment is this one place where it's like, let's connect. So you could be a man of the people that people are going to go, oh, you got to go see this. He sings a funny song about potatoes. And then somebody else needs this other kind of flavor. And that's all it really is, is we just find some song that we all like, yeah. maybe. And it's a starting point because we're going to all be different. But as musicians. You got to respect people. You gotta yeah. respect people, and that's what those guys do. That's what that's what that's what legendary performers do. They do. And that's what Ron Hines taught me. That was what Ron Hines. Oh, said. It's God not about the audience that, loving you; it's about them realizing that you love them. What? Say that again. That, that was, was um, that's Ron how Hines? he said. It. That's what that was. Man like, of a thousand songs. That's what he said to me. He was like, "Man, it's it's not about getting the audience to love you; it's making them understand that you love them." Oh, that's the perfect thing I've ever heard in my <sighs> life. I just got goosebumps. And I was like, Man. hey, we're going to end it here. Yeah. We can't get any further than we that. We do have to end it. Okay, no, that up. was perfect ending. I love you, buddy. I love you too. <laughs> it's great to have you. Thanks so much for doing this, Steve. <laughs> you should probably cut out the joke about Steve Martin, the best pussy it's I've ever had. It's okay. in there. It's in there, buddy. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> All right, have fun tonight. Thanks. Okay. I tell you, a wild man, Steve Poles. It was a real pleasure. It's just nice to be around that kind of energy and really nice to be able to be in the same room and do that. I look forward to more people coming to me, coming to Fredericton, having a little visit, checking out my studio, checking out my house. It was really nice to have them over and just nice to be part of that energy, that enthusiasm. We got to meet my kids. They thought he was wild too. They loved him. Hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Check out all the other conversations. We got a Facebook fan page, Miles From Home. 
Leave some comments there. You can talk about your favorite episodes. Tell us who you think we should have on the show. All of that stuff is super helpful, especially when you share the episodes or you rate the episodes on any of those streaming sites. That makes a big difference, too. I really appreciate all your support in this endeavor. I love doing it. Remember, I'm on Instagram at David Miles, Twitter at Miles. David, I appreciate you. If you want to check out more Steve Poltz, go to Poltz.com, P-O-L-T z.com the never-ending tour he's always out there so you too could go see steve bolt and enjoy some of that magical energy we'll be back real soon with another episode take care of yourselves thanks again for being here with me peace